The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is on page 775 of the Bible in the pew back in front of you. That's page 775, in case you didn't hear that. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to take the one in front of you as a gift from Park Church. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 28. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It should not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you would be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kira. Good morning. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to be with you all. Sweet to be able to worship with you all. I want to take a moment and pray. Uh, And as we pray, I want to just invite you to kind of calm your heart and remember that Jesus is with us. Uh, Not like figuratively. uh, He's actually with us. He's actually with us. He's here and he cares about you. He cares about this moment. There are things he wants to speak to us. Uh, We talked about this, you're never going to let us down. And when I was singing those words, what was coming to my mind is that passage in Philippians where it says, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Like, he's going to keep working in us. And these moments are a piece of that. These moments are a piece of that where God wants to speak to us and, and do things in our heart to heal, to free us, to bring conviction, to bring transformation into our heart. And so let's pray that the spirit of Jesus would do that among us this morning. Jesus, we right now want to calm our hearts and remember that you're with us. And so would you awaken us to the reality of your presence? Would you remind us right now, not just in our head, but in the depth of our being, that you are with us, that you see us, that you know us, that you care about us, that you want to do things in our lives? There are things you want to speak to each one of us this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, would you help us to have soft hearts to hear what you would have for each one of us? Would you help us to have yielded spirits that would respond in faith and obedience 
Because of your grace and your love, would you give us the strength? Would you give us the strength to follow you wherever you lead us to go? We pray these things for your glory. Amen. Uh, this passage this morning in Matthew chapter 20 uh, is it's funny. It's funny and sad and one of those stories that like slowly bores a hole in your heart over time. Like little by little, you're like, the more I sat on it this week, first I'm like, oh, this is a good story. Oh, this is like, man, wow. Oh, that's pretty heavy. Man, that's a heavy thing. And then little by little, like the rest of the week, I've just felt deeply convicted in a lot of areas of life. And it has the power to do that. Um, but I want to just get right into it because of how compelling the story itself is as Jesus interacts with his disciples. So if you have a Bible, I want you to open it up. Or if you don't have one, you can grab the one in front of you. We're going to make our way through the story and kind of look at Jesus' interaction with his disciples in this really pivotal moment in their journey as he's clarifying for them not, not only who he is and what he's going to do, but the, but the type of people that he's called us to be in his kingdom, the type of people he's called all of us to be. Look with me. This is Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 1. It says this, or starting in verse 17. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside on the way. I want you to get into the, to the moment uh, where we're at in the Gospel of Matthew. For the past several weeks in the sort of history in the historical moment, Jesus has been marching towards Jerusalem. That's been a number of months for us. Uh, we're making our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, several weeks back in the, in the narrative, Jesus began this kind of determined march towards Jerusalem. And this has a lot of significance to it. It's the sort of rising action in the sort of plot of Matthew. You have this sense for the people that are following Jesus around that there's this growing awareness and conviction for his closest followers that Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for. He's the king who's come to restore God's kingdom. He's the king who's come to liberate them from Roman oppression. He's the king who's come to establish Israel back to its former glory. He's the king that's come to make Israel such a spectacular nation, such a spectacular kingdom that other nations would look at Israel with admiration. Whereas at this moment, Israel is stuck under the thumb of Rome and they've been under the thumb of different global superpowers for a long time. And so they have this awareness that Jesus is the king we've been waiting for. But he's been kind of like low-key about it. He's been cryptic in his teachings. He's been hesitant. When things start building, he says something confrontational and controversial and weird, and it scares people off. And so you have the disciples kind of like ready to go, getting excited, but still there's these things that just keep kind of making the, the whole kind of experience of following Jesus different than they expected. And so finally he begins marching towards Jerusalem, and you get this sense that the disciples are like, here we go. Like it's, it's go time, it's about to be game time, he's going to go. You also know in the narrative there's been this increasing conflict where the religious leaders are increasingly frustrated by and, and threatened by Jesus, and are now threatening Jesus in different ways. And so you feel the rising action moving towards Jerusalem, and that's the moment that we're in. They're, they're kind of on their way there, and it's like Jesus understands that their expectations are, are jacked a little bit. And so he's like, all right, hold on. Time out. I need to, I need to share with you all something a little, a little more clearly about what's about to happen. Here's what's about to happen. And so Jesus pulls them aside and says this. It's Matthew again, 2017, 2018 now. See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the disciples are like, yeah, we are. Let's do it. And, uh, 
And he says, and the son of man, and as soon as they hear the son of man, it triggers this like explosion of expectations for them. That was a really important word in the Old Testament history and the prophets, especially in Daniel. We'll talk about that in a second. But just know when he calls himself the son of man, it means something to them. They're like, oh, the son of man, the king is coming to Jerusalem. Let's go. And it's like they kind of like from that point forward, tune him out. Listen to what he says. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. You're in this moment where I I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you have to kind of work up the courage to kind of have a heavy conversation, something you know is going to be a heavy conversation. I've had the kind of like um, the the weight uh, and the opportunity to sit with people in some really painful moments where they have to have some really hard conversations about death. It's a really heavy thing to talk about that. And it's a really heavy thing to kind of sit with people that you, that you love and to talk about some really, really kind of uh, topics with, that have a ton of gravity, a ton of sobriety. And so you almost like imagine Jesus kind of like, he, through the narrative, the, the weight of what's coming is, is, is heavy for him. And he sees his disciples on a different wavelength for sure. They're like pumped about what's coming. He's not as pumped. He's determined. He's headed there, but he feels the weight of it. Joy is motivating him. The, the purposefulness of what he's going to do is motivating him, but there's a heaviness. And so he sits them down, and, he, and he's clarifying what's going to happen. And so the disciples obviously responded with this incredible weight and grief, like, oh, my gosh, that sounds really heavy. How are you doing with that? It's not what we expected. Is that what they did? No. It's like the way Matthew frames the narrative, it's crickets. I mean, it's nothing. It's, it's almost like they're like, Cool. So, um, James and John are like, I, I, get, I don't know if I tracked that whole thing, but my mom has a question for you real quick. Um, <laughs> my mom has a question for you real quick. And, uh, and so Mama, Z, Mama Z, Zebedee, uh, Mama Zebedee comes up and she's like, hey, you know, she comes and there's James and John and, and they have a question that just shows like they totally missed everything he just said. They totally, it just didn't commute, it didn't compute, it didn't connect. And, uh, and, and in time, there are times where I'm like, these guys are thick, you know? And, and then my condescension towards them, like, immediately becomes conviction, you know, where it's like, oh, man, like, that's me. All the time, all the time I have this sense of, like, Jesus has taught so clearly what his kingdom's like, but I'm so, like, I'm so thickly kind of, like, surrounded by and embedded in a culture that has a certain way of thinking about life and value and glory and goodness. I was born into a culture that thinks about the world and about what greatness is and what beauty is and what goodness and what leads to a flourishing life. I've woken up in that world. I've lived my life creating new patterns and behaviors and values that I've just kind of taken on myself, and I live so kind of ingrained in this whole world, this whole system that Jesus can say things that just like, I'm like, I want to follow Jesus. And he says really hard things about what it looks like to follow him, like in this passage. And I'm like, yeah, let's do that. And I just keep living the same way. And so the disciples like thick headedness is a, is a weird encouragement to me because at this point they have no clue, not, not only what he is going to do, but what this will mean for their own understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And yet by the end of their life, they will be so deeply transformed that they will indeed follow Jesus with this sort of self-sacrificial life. But it's a journey. It's a journey from this kind of thick-headed, kind of like thinking through different like paradigms and value systems as he slowly works in them and through them by the power of the Spirit over time to transform them to be the kind of people that will actually follow his leadership by his Spirit uh, into this sort of self-sacrificial life. But in this moment, it's not making any sense to them. I want to highlight this phrase, the Son of Man, because it's really significant in, in the narrative. And so when, when you learn about names or titles of Jesus, it's really easy for us to just kind of glance past them because we can become really familiar with them. Like the, one of the most common titles to refer to Jesus in the New Testament is Christ, the Christ. It's not his last name. It's not Jesus, you know, last name Christ from Joseph and Mary Christ. Um, it's Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the anointed, long-awaited, anticipated king of Israel who's going to restore all things. It's the most common phrase or title given to Jesus by the later New Testament writers. However, the most common title that Jesus uses for himself is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. What is that? It's not like trying to use some like weird, like semi-formal, like, well, even the Son of Man, you know, like he's not just trying to be like dramatic. It has a, it has a history to it, the phrase does has history. Most fundamentally, the phrase means human. just means human. If you ever read the Narnia series, when uh, the Pevensies make their way into Narnia or others make their way into Narnia, they re- they're referred to as sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, right? And all that means in the, Nar- in the Narnia kind of chronicles is that these are humans. These are humans, and that's what this means. He's a son of man. He's fully human, fully human. But it's not about a gen- like a generic human, This phrase tapped into an expectation for a very specific human, a very specific one. In fact, the the story behind this phrase goes all the way back to the beginning where Adam and Eve, the the kind of first humans that are in God's presence, they're in this, this paradise where God is with them. He reigns over them as king. He's called them to kind of be manifestations of, to be expressions of his kingship as they know his love, know his presence, know his guidance, listen to his word, follow his wisdom. And as they live the lives in this space, cultivating the earth, making something of the world, that these human beings were designed to actually be so secure in God's love for them that they could take their own vocation, their own skills, their own wisdom, and use them in sacrifice ways to bless other people. And as this community would multiply, the idea was that this community would be a multiplication of people that are so secure in God's love for them, so in step with his spirit, that they would be free to use all the different gifts that they've been given, different values, different skills, different passions, to bless others and to create a world that's flourishing, to make something of the world, and to multiply a, a community that would be full of joy, where everyone would feel loved and cared for, but not because they demanded it, but because everybody was freely giving of themselves for one another. That's the idea. And into that space becomes, comes a deceiver who tempts the first humans to turn away from God's reign and say, if you really want joy, you've got to do it your own way. You've got to do it your own way. You're going to have to do it different than what God said. He's just trying to hold stuff back for you. You've got to claw for it. You've got to reach for it. You've got to grab for it on your own. And you've got to grab for it on your own, even, even though God has said that will lead to pain and destruction and death. You won't surely die. Like, just reach for it. Get it on your own terms. Get it your own way. Get value, get love, get significance, get glory, get joy your own way. And Eve listens to the serpent and she takes from this fruit and eats it. She gives it to her husband, Adam, who's sitting there and eats it. And into this story now becomes 
shame, separation, shame before God, shame before one another, one another, competition, clamoring over each other, competition, trying to kind of like be greater than the other, trying to blame shift other people to push them down, to exalt yourself above. Into the story comes brokenness and comparison. And, and all of this brokenness that so marks our society and marks our own hearts kind of starts in this moment. And into that moment where there's real consequences for human rebellion, God also makes a promise that a day is coming when there will be a, a human that will come from Adam and Eve. This offspring, this seed, this descendant, this son will come. And the son will crush the head of that serpent, but not without cost. He will himself get struck on the heel by the serpent being dealt a mortal blow. And that this son who crushes the head of that deceiver and restores people to God's kingdom and God's wisdom for life and God's love and God's presence will himself do it through his sacrificial death on their behalf. And this is the sort of framework of the promise that exists in Genesis that begins to kind of carry its weight all the way through the Old Testament story where the growing anticipation in the Old Testament story is like, wow, people are a mess. I mean, like, people are not hot in the Old Testament. I mean, like, there is just like brokenness, pain, rebellion, deception, betrayal, brokenness, pain, rebellion, deception, betrayal, death. It's corruption. It's pain. And the people of Israel, as that story progresses, are waiting for this offspring, this seed, this son to come. And then you get to the story of Daniel. And in Daniel, where the people of Israel now, they're in exile in a place called Babylon. And there's this pain. And, and Daniel is this young man who's trying to be faithful to God and, and praying and trying to stay close to him even while he's off in exile. And he has these dreams. Check this. This is weird. If you want a book that has like cool like stories that you learned as a kid and then some really weird stuff that like you can't even get your mind around, Daniel's your book. Just uh, Daniel's your book. It has like weird genres that are foreign to us, dreams that are odd. Some of the odd dreams, what they're referring to, he actually gives an explanation that these are these kingdoms that had come that were rising and falling and rising and falling, all of which, these four different kingdoms, were bringing oppression and pain to the people of Israel. So Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the, Greco, the, the Empire of Greece with Alexander the Great, even potentially the Roman Empire, all of these things are like portrayed in these dreams. And the sense is, these kingdoms are crushing us. Will there ever be a day where God will be faithful to his promise? And there's a prophecy in Daniel 7 that's stunning about that day. I'm going to read it for you. We'll have it on the screen. It's Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this dream. He says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. That's the phrase. That Old Testament people had latched onto, the prophets latched onto, the people of Israel throughout their history had latched onto. One like the Son of Man coming with the clouds. It's like escorted by the clouds into the heavenly realm, coming before the Ancient of Days, which is this picture of the Lord God Almighty. And this one, this Son of Man, this human that we've been waiting for, he's presented before him. And to him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not 
be destroyed. That passage, that promise, that prophetic expectation had shaped the people of God. I, I know that we're getting crushed by the Babylonians. I know that we're getting crushed by the, by the Medes. I know that we're getting crushed by the Persians. I know that we're getting crushed by the Greeks. I know, but there's a day coming. There's a whole prophecy about it, about these kingdoms are going to come, but then there will be one who comes. He'll be a human. He'll be like the Son of Man. He'll be presented before God the Father, and he'll be given a kingdom, and it'll be justice and righteousness and peace and all of our people will be restored and even the nations and people who speak other languages will come and bow down before him and serve him. And so when Jesus says over and over and over, for the Son of Man says, for even the Son of Man, for the Son of Man says, it's building all of that sense of expectation. Now he's headed to Jerusalem and they're like, this is it. And he's going, the son of man's going to go in their expectation. He's going to go. He's going to establish a kingdom. He's going he's to drive out the Romans. He's going to restore Israel. It's going to be beautiful. The Romans are going to be like, oh my gosh, your God's the real God. And, and then all the other people are going to come from around and be like, did you see what Israel's God did for Israel? And the whole world is going to come to love Israel and love our God and worship him. And it's about to happen. That's what they're feeling. So when Jesus says that he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be condemned, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be scourged, he's going to be crucified, it just doesn't compute. It just doesn't get so outside of their anticipation of what the Son of Man does, who the Son of Man is. And so look what happens in the passage. It's not crazy that Mama Z says what she says. Look at it, it says, it says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. She's like, hi, you know, I've been with you for a little while. I heard you say son of man. I know what that means. I read Daniel 7. And my sons, you know, James and John, they've been with you for a little while. You took them away from me. No big deal. I'm cool with it. I'm cool. Like they left their dad, Zebedee, with the nets in the boat. But we made, we made do. Like I, I trust you. This is good. You took them away. I kind of expected to build a family and be grandma to their kids and kind of be around them. Like, but it's all good. Just minor request. Minor request. Like, son of man, go into Jerusalem. When you do your kingdom thing, when you do your kingdom thing, my sons who are right there with you, like they're great. I mean, they're, my kids are great. Love my kids. Have you seen the pictures? You know, like they're great. And they've been with you. And they've been with you. They're clearly some of your favorites. So um, when you establish your kingdom and when you sit on the throne and when you do your king thing, your son of man thing, can, can they be at your right and, uh, and on your left? They're, they're, they're wonderful. They're like, they're, they'd be perfect f- for it. And it's not like she's doing this against their will. James and John are right there with her, like, Mom, Mom, ask him. Ask him. It's like you're, you know, asking your parents to, like, write a note to your teacher because you don't know how to, like, have the courage to talk to your teacher when you're in grad school, you know, or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so it's like this moment, it's this moment where the expectation and the, and the, the paradigm that they have is that this is going to be a glorious moment. And, and James and John are there, with their mom, and their mom's asking for this, this place of honor in the kingdom, this place of status, this place of prestige in God's kingdom. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, the, the image of a cup was a common image in the Old Testament 
to refer to God's wrath towards human rebellion, God's judgment against human rebellion. In fact, the the cup was something that God would have people drink who were in rebellion to them. That would lead to staggering, to stumbling. It would be an act of judgment to drink the cup. And so here's Jesus, the son of man, the righteous one, the one we've been waiting for. And what he says is, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm drinking it. I'm drinking a cup. Which would have been hard for them to even understand. Which is maybe why they respond like, yes. Um, right? Which is a weird response. He's like, are you, are you able to drink the cup? And he asked this to James and John who are right there. Are you, are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said to him, we are able. Um, which, again, I resonate with because I feel like there are times where Jesus is like, like, I want to follow you with my whole life. I want to give myself to you. And he's like, man, I'm calling you. I'm calling you to something that's going to have pain and difficulty. And I'm like, yeah, 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 it's fine. Then you kind of get into it. You're like, well, wait a second. You know, like, uh, kind of like call an audible real quick. And uh, you feel this sense of like, they, they have this idea like, I'm all in for Jesus. But they don't yet understand what that's going to mean for them. And what Jesus says, it, it will mean it will mean you will drink a cup like mine. Like you, he's saying you will suffer. You will, in, you will indeed suffer. More than you know. In fact, James will be one of the first Christian martyrs. You can read about in the book of Acts. John will go through incredible pain, will eventually be exiled on the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. But deep, deep pain, betrayal, loss of friends, family, personal suffering and sacrifice. Jesus says to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. By my Father. And then look what it says, verse 24. And when the the ten, so that's two of the twelve, when the other ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. They weren't, and it wasn't like, James and John, you boneheads, like, didn't you listen to what he just said? It's going to be rough. It's going to be pain. It's going to be suffering. That's not what you want. And the timing's wrong. He's grieving. He's, he's carrying heavy stuff. That's not why they're indignant. They're indignant because James and John got there first. They're indignant because if it's James and John, then Peter's like, then it's not me. If it's James and John, then Andrew's like, well, what about me? Bar- Bartholomew's like, what about me? Matthew's like, what about me? They can't get it. Hold on. I've been faithful. I left my family too. I left my job too. I left a ton of money. I left all these other things. Like, they're all clamoring and competing to be the greatest according to a broken paradigm. Here's what's stunning to me. Jesus does not rebuke their ambition for greatness. He doesn't rebuke it. He rebukes the way they think about greatness. He rebukes the way they think about greatness. So I want to talk about this idea of ambition for greatness for a second. I'm going to put a definition here on the screen of ambition. This is just a dictionary definition. It's a strong desire to do or to achieve something, typically requiring determination and hard work. And ambition is not sinful. It's not evil. In fact, it's a part of something you are given. As a human being, you are given passion. You are given desire. You are given vocation. You are given calling to to make something of the world, to participate in what God's doing in the world. You are given that. It's good. It's right. It's human. In fact, if you shut down all of your sense of drive and passion, you get kind of a shadowy version of who you were designed to be. We weren't designed to be people that just kind of like settle in on the status quo, kind of hang around and numb our lives with social media and kind of like just mindless activities. That's not who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be people that have passion. Passion to give of ourselves for the 
the glory of Christ and his kingdom. We're supposed to have that. And so what Jesus is rebuking is not an ambition for greatness, but he is rebu- rebuking the cultural way of thinking about it. Look what he says in the passage. He says this. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, when you read Gentiles, read the nations, like out there in the world, the way that the, the world thinks about rulership and about greatness is different. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. He's saying, what I'm calling you to in my kingdom is different than what you experience in the world around you. In the world around you, the way that their culture thought about greatness was power over others. Power over others. So the great ones in their society were the, were the rulers that used their power to get people to serve them, to defeat their enemies, to conquer and conquest overs, even when they'd have like uh, different military kind of like uh, endeavors after they would defeat another country, they'd take all the leaders from the other country and they'd lead them in this thing called the triumphal procession at, kind of through their town, like, look who I defeated. And all the people would be like, wow, our king is the best king. Look at all the people he dominated. Like dominating others was greatness in their culture. And in a lot of cultures throughout history. But as I was thinking about this passage for us, I think there's actually, in our cultural moment, less of a sense of we really value people who dominate over other people. And so I looked up just a recent survey, this is this year, of like the kinds of jobs and vocations that people tend to, to respect. And so here's a survey. I want to show you a few of these. There's maybe 15 or so of them, so I'll show them on a few pages. Uh, but I want to show you, just here are the things that are the most respected vocations right now today. And as you like place yourself on here or don't find yourself on here, like and you feel it tugging at your heartstrings, like that's why you're here today listening to Jesus say these things. Um, most prestigious or most highly respected, I should say, doctors, scientists, farmers, firefighters. You can look at the percentage of people who value those. Next would be teachers, nurses, members of the military. Now all those are in the 80 plus percentile of people are like, I respect people I tend to respect people highly in that vocation. Then we're getting a little bit lower. Garbage collectors, police officers, software developers. We're down in the 60s now. Uh, Next, entrepreneurs, lawyers, professional athletes, accountants, corporate CEOs. Way down in the 50s there for members of clergy. What's up? Uh, What's up? TV, (laughs) newspaper reporters, social media influencers, reality TV stars, and the bottom of the list is politicians. Bottom of the list. So we don't look at the people that are kind of like providing like leadership in our cities or our states or our nation with respect. We actually see it really negatively. And why is that? Well, there's a, there's a real sense that power has been grossly abused and misused in culture. So now power, the default when you think about people who have influence is a sense of suspicion or skepticism about that, which makes sense because there's been a lot of abuses of that. So I want to kind of like show you that another graph of the same survey that kind of shows what people value and what led them to these things. Look at this. Number one most important factor when thinking, do I respect that vocation or not, is does it have to do with caring for others? Top of the list. Not power over others, not wealth generated by the job. Does it, does it care for others? Second one, is it, are they trustworthy? Is it a, tr- a trustworthy profession? Being essential to society. And then you start getting into high level of intellect required, and then we'll look at the next page. Look at the bottom four on this next page. So high level of education required, and then these, physical ability, high income, level of prestige, and at the bottom of the list, having power over others. That's fascinating to me. It used to be the most esteemed thing in cultures, power over others. That's greatness. And now it's at the bottom. 
A part of that, and any soci- sociologist can talk about that, is, is, a, is a part of it is the impact of a Christian value system on societies over time. There's a lot of Christians almost entirely that started hospitals, education, care for the poor, care for the homeless, care for orphans. It was Christians that created a lot of systems in which now we have industries, more secularized industries to support those. That doesn't mean that those value systems making their way into society makes it a Christian society, nor does it mean that having a posture of care for others in different vocational endeavors equals a heart transformed by the gospel of grace. It doesn't mean those things. In fact, in fact, some of the most servant-hearted people in the world, and this is true in many ways for each of us, more true than we want to imagine, do things for others, not because of primarily what they do for others, but because of the respect that it garners for them, for me, for us. You can serve others as a way to serve yourself. In a society that respects service, vulnerability, humility, you can wield those good tools as a way to elevate yourself above others. So I don't think that in our society it's predominantly greatness through power over others, but I do think in our society it's greatness through better than others. Better than others. And it's competitive. It's deeply competitive. We want to be seen as valuable through our efforts to be better than the next person. There's a famous, I mean, a a chapter, I say it's a famous chapter, it should be a famous chapter, in mere Christianity called The Great Sin. And Lewis writes about pride. And I want you to just hear what he says about pride because it taps into this. This is C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity on the Great Sin. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. And and that kind of area for each of us can be different. It can be, I I have more money than the rest. I have more influence than the rest. I'm a more servant-hearted person than the rest. I do more charitable work than the rest. I go on more vacations. I have better style. I'm more organized and structured. I'm more laid back. Whatever your kind of like category is through which you're finding like, look, aren't I valuable? Look, aren't I meaningful? Look, don't you love me? Aren't I worthy of esteem and status? It's some sense of being above the rest. Now, here's the insidious thing about that, that effort, that agenda, is your reference group always changes. Just always changes, right? As soon as you feel like maybe, maybe you have made some progress in your vocation, now you're in a whole new realm. You're in a whole new echelon of that particular area, and then now there's still people above you, still people above you, still people above you, and it's this kind of insidious thing that just never delivers, never get what you're looking for when you're pursuing greatness and value and status in that way. There's a philosopher um, who, a Canadian philosopher named Alain de de Baton, who wrote a book called Status Anxiety, where he's talking about the anxiety we feel for always feeling just a little bit less and the energy we put, anxious energy towards just getting up that next rung and then the reference group always changes and we're just always feeling that sort of anxiety about where we measure up in the social hierarchy where we measure up. And so listen to what he says about what's motivating that. He says, once food and shelter have been secured, the predominant impulse behind our desire to succeed in the social hierarchy may may lay not so much with the goods we can accrue or the power we can wield, 
Listen to this. As with the amount of love we stand to receive as a consequence of high status. That effort to climb, whatever ladder you're trying to climb, with whatever means that that you're employing to get there, is driven most fundamentally by a desire to be valuable, to be seen, to be loved, to be accepted. In fact, if you watch any documentaries or listen to any interviews of some of the most successful people in our world in different industries, you will often see the most successful, the most elite, the people most clearly at the top have been driven by deep insecurities. You can hear it in the last dance when Michael Jordan's talking about what drove him to be the greatest, the pain with his relationship with his father, always feeling just a little bit less than compared to his brother, always feeling like no matter how much he tried, he's always kind of trying to get the the approval of his father. You can hear it from Alex Honnold in Free Solo, never hearing I love you from his father, a kind of stoic family, that drivenness to kind of like do something that would make him valuable or noticeable. I was watching a a Netflix thing called The Chef's Table where you get all these like prestigious chefs, some of the the best chefs in the world and a lot of their stories and a lot of their stories, deep insecurities. Like the thing that just drives people to to be more, to do more, to keep going is a sense of like, is it enough? Am I enough? Yet, 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 yet a desperate desire for love. And it's a hard thing because you can do that in religious endeavors, you can do it in secular endeavors, you can do it in finances, you can do it in politics, you can do it with a family, you can do it with your kids, you can do it in a marriage, you can do it with your classmates. You can do it anywhere. It's a huge piece of my own story. A huge piece of my own story is, is how much I've cared, even as a preacher throughout my life, of what people think about me. I, I, you know, I joke about clergy being at, toward the bottom of the, of the list there. Um, that, that's, that's increasingly true in society. I feel that from society. But I get interactions with, with Christians at times. They're like, wow, I really admire what you do. Like, I really admire what you do. As if, like, what I do is any real insight into my heart. Because you can, you can be a pastor and be a total, total wreck of a human. It's deeply insecure. There's a lot of us, many of us, wrestle with deep, deep insecurities that create a lot of pain in communities because of those spaces. So you can get up on Sunday and you could preach a message or you could teach or you could do a counseling session or you could lead a small group or you could do any of these things as an expression of love and service to others. You could also do it because people are like, wow, whoa, whoa, you're good, you're good. It's like, oh, no, no, praise God, praise God, praise the Lord, you know. Uh, like, come on. <laughs> now, like, you, it's, it's, it's gross. It's gross. The, the anxieties I have lived with and felt because of those struggles in my own life, the insecurities, the fear, the sort of joy that goes up and down with how well I feel like I'm leading or doing or preaching, it's real. And what has helped me grow little by little over time is not Jesus saying, serve more. You should be more servant-hearted. It's learning more about his love for me, even in my brokenness, even in my shame, even in my anxiety, even in my insecurities. And that's what I think is stunning in this, that the rabbit hole of our selfishness is so deep, so deep, that none of us could say, I, maybe I shouldn't project, my heart's twisted enough that to say we're doing things out of this pure-hearted service towards others is just something I can't, I, can't, I couldn't say. My motives are too much of a mixed bag. I want to, and I hope I'm growing and like doing what God's called me to do as an expression of love, but I've got all my own garbage that's like mingled in there, and, and my guess is so do you. Where even some of our, our most kind of pure acts of service are still 
affected by it. And you kind of get to this place, like, who can deliver us from these, like, self-absorbed hearts that can't even, like, take a good thing and, like, do it with a pure-hearted motive? Like, we even take the good things and, like, mix in there, like, but didn't you notice? Did they see that? Did they catch that? You know, uh, it's real for all of us. Who can deliver us? And that's what I love about this passage. I love about this passage is Jesus is going to turn a corner here and not offer himself merely as an example, but as a liberator. As a liberator. Look at what he says in the passage. He says, it shall not be so among you. You know how it works in the world. That's not the way it's supposed to work. It's not the way it was supposed to work from the beginning of my kingdom in Genesis. It's certainly not the way it's supposed to work here and now. In fact, he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He has said a phrase like that multiple times over the past couple chapters. It's like he's really trying to get it through to us. My kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. If you ever see that upside-down crown on all of our kind of print media, it's because this is what we're talking about. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. In the world, up is up, climbing is up, establishing yourself over others, treating value as a zero-sum game. Like, if you respect me, I want your respect for me, but if you respect that person's choices, it feels like it, it immediately is like tears me down. And we treat value like, do people see us and notice us? And do they agree with us? And do they think about politics the same way? And do they make decisions about their kids' school the same way? And do they kind of think about the, the, the world the same way? And do they engage with their neighbors? And do they certain, like, and we kind of constantly try to, like, build this sense of value where we're trying to establish ourselves as better than others, above others. And Jesus says, no, 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 not my kingdom. My kingdom down is up. Down is up. So when you lay your life down, not just like occasionally doing a little like service project, but when you see a core piece of your identity as a servant, as somebody whose very existence, you're, you're designed inherently to be a person that's so secure in God's love for you that you're free to give of yourself to others in every context, in any space. And when you do that, when you serve not out of security from God's love, but to get stuff from people, that's what burns people out. When it's like serve more, serve more, serve more, and you're trying to prove yourself through your service, then you push past your limits, you burn out but don't know how to deal with your own anxiety and your own fear because so much of your sense of identity has been in being a servant that it's not coming from a place of deep security in God's love that's now motivating a life of service, self-giving love for others which is why what Jesus says in this passage is so powerful. He doesn't just say, follow my example, serve. Listen to what he says. He says, for even as the son of man came not to be served. Remember son of man. He's like, hey, I know you're latching on to the son of man stuff. I know you're pumped about me getting a kingdom. I know you're pumped about being with me when I establish the kingdom. I'm not doing it the way you think I'm, I'm going to do it. Even the son of man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's that word ransom that's so key. Ransom in the biblical terminology is this idea of a price paid to bring liberation to other people. A price paid to bring liberation to other people. And Jesus is saying, you know what I just said to you all about what I'm going to Jerusalem to do? It's not purposeless. It's not this kind of like, it's just going to happen, it's going to be a bummer. I'm doing it to lay my life down, to give my own life as a payment for you, to liberate you, 
to liberate you from this system of thinking, of climbing and trying to establish your identity and your worth and your value apart from me and apart from what I already declare you to be in me. And so he says, I'm, I'm laying down my life as the son of man. I'm taking all of my power, all of my glory, and the way that I'm going to be exalted is not by sitting on a throne in the temple. It's going to be outside the city gates, and my throne will be a cross. And I will be lifted up on that cross, and people will indeed worship me, the crucified Christ, will proclaim it. But it won't be because I established my power over others. It will be because I laid my life down on behalf of others. It will be because I emptied myself and I shed my blood, not merely as an example, but to atone for you, to forgive you, to pay your debt, and to express my love for you even while you were self-absorbed, people running away from me, I even then loved you. And can I tell you how powerful it is to know that he loves you even when you're a wreck? It is powerful to know that you don't have to prove to anybody that you're awesome, you can actually just admit that you're not. And he loves me. And he loves you. You don't have to be better than other people. You can be exactly who he called you to be because he loves you. You don't have to prove to your parents or your spouse or your colleagues that you're great and you're spectacular and aren't you worthy of love. He sees you. He knows you. He loves you. You don't have to minimize your weaknesses and tuck away your mistakes and sweep everything under the rug and just be like, but, but don't you still think I'm good? You can admit all of it because he sees all of it. And while you're still in that broken space, he loves you. The love of Christ for us while we still run away from him is the most liberating most freeing, most joyful thing in the world to get your mind and your heart around his atoning work for you, his love for you, will free you, will free you. And what I love about Jesus, his example, isn't just that he emptied himself to atone for us and to express love, but it wasn't the end of his story. It wasn't the end of his story. In fact, Paul will talk about this moment that he emptied himself and he became human. That human became a servant and that servant served to the point of death, even death on the cross. And that movement down, he says, therefore he's highly exalted. That's glory. He's given the name above every name. That's glory. So at the name of Jesus, the son of man, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the son of man, but he established his kingdom by being a servant and serving to the point of death. That's how he did it. And so for us, you have the love of Christ. You have the forgiveness and the grace of God that allows us to be on a journey with this. You have the love of Christ that liberates us from trying to prove anything to any other people. And you have the resurrection ahead that enables you to empty your life, even when it won't ever mean people see you and say, wow, what a great job. Even if your spouse doesn't reciprocate that servant-hearted love, even if your colleagues, you kind of constantly try to help other people and bless other people, and they just take advantage of your love and trample on it. Hmm, who does that sound like? Man, that sounds a lot like Jesus. You're like, well, you got to take care of yourself. I'm like, hey, I get it. I get it. There are so many people who have been such like these kind of like, serve more, serve more, serve more, and have all these kind of Christians and, and, and people that feel it's like real burden to serve with no real sense of God's love and care. It's not from a place of freedom and liberty. It's from a place of guilt or shame or from anxiety or insecurity. That's not healthy. That'll burn you out. But there's a way to experience a life of service that's so freeing, so liberating. And it comes when we truly believe that God sees you and he knows you and he loves you. He loves you. And 
believing that even if you were to lay your life down in obscurity, in anonymity, and nobody ever saw what you did, nobody ever gave you a high five or a pat on the back or an attaboy or girl. nobody ever came up and was like, well done, wow, what a life of service, that God sees you and the resurrection is that great vindication. He says, in my kingdom, people who live their life as servants of others, that's greatness. That's greatness. And I will say, there are great ones in this community. There are great ones in this community. It's people that are serving in anonymity, that are faithful when things are hard, that are showing up in spaces to love somebody, to write a note, to care for others, to reach out to your neighbors. Nobody sees you doing that. But you reach out because you want to love and serve them. You show up in spaces and you care for people, even when it feels like people aren't caring for you. You open up your house. You go down, you're serving with kids. You're here staying late just to, just to be kind to somebody. You're inviting people to join you for lunch. You're going to your workspace. And you're at your workspace truly trying to think, what can I do? How can I use the skills God's given me to, to bring glory to the world, to bring, to bring goodness to those around me? You're being glanced over, but you're not kind of climbing up the ladder. There, there are so many people in this community. I felt when we were praying this morning in our pre-service prayer time, I, f- I felt Jesus saying, look around this community at how many servant-hearted people are here. Like there's so many of you here that are just examples to all of us. Examples to all of us in your humble, kind, self-giving love. And I think Jesus would say to you, well done, well done, well done. I see you. He delights in that. And he invites all of us into that way of life. And my prayer for us as a community is that we'd be so compelled by the love of Christ, the self-giving love of Christ, so freed by his love, so motivated by the resurrection, that we'd be free to live lives of service. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us? even now, to be a community that grows, first in our ability to know your love for us, to see your care for us, to see your servant-hearted leadership of your people, but also that we grow by the power of your spirit to be people who reflect that in the way we live, in our marriages, in our households, with our roommates, with our classmates, with our neighbors and our colleagues, employers and employees. God, that we would be a people that grow that we wouldn't seek our own interests, we'd seek the interests of others above our own. Give us the mind of Christ that we could reflect his glory in this world. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.